Welcome. This is season three of The Daily Market, where we've decided to do something a little special. Earlier this year, startup junkie and marketplace master Ty Wolf-Jones, hey Ty, approached me and pitched us the idea of instead of interviewing founders and marketers, why don't we dive into the world of marketplaces, the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces, or what is the making of the sausage of a marketplace? Ty could bring the operations point of view, and I could bring the marketing point of view, and we could make some marketplace magic, or maybe a little more like Marketplace Mayhem. So join us for the series where we've spoken to over a dozen marketplace leaders and pioneers from Uber, Convoy, Bellhop, DoorDash, Rover, but also some rising stars and marketplaces from multiple countries, venture capitalists, and more. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Who is Brooke Steger? Ladies and gentlemen, Brooke Steger is the founder and CEO of Vivian & Co., more importantly, formerly, Brooke was Uber's general manager of the Pacific Northwest region, where she took it from 1 to 100 in rapid speed. Seattle was actually the third market for Uber, where Brooke took it from an unknown brand, I mean, I didn't know about it back in 2012, to a 10-figure business. That's right, 10. Before Uber, she was the director at Lockers and currently on the board of several other startups that are trying to make a splash. You're going to hear more about this later. Now back to Uber. Over the course of five years, Brooke took the Pacific Northwest region from a $1 million to $1 billion P&L, that's profit and loss, spoke at state congress to get rideshare bills passed, and built the team from the ground up. This conversation was incredible. Brooke is super impressive. She hustles, capital hustles, and pursues what she's passionate about, which seems to be a constant thread throughout her life. What do you think, Ty? Yeah, I'm one of the lucky people that got to meet Brooke by working for Brooke. Um, I worked for her at Uber, and I just always found her a very impressive, cool, calm, collected leader that was just as comfortable in front of unions and speaking in front of unions as she was on a panel, you know, for a big startup blog or staying at the office till 8, 9 p.m., you know, riffing with the team. So, you know, just a really impressive individual that has seen Uber from those days when it wasn't Uber. You know, here we are talking about marketplaces because of a company called Uber. That Back then, they didn't know what this was. They didn't know how to do this. Um, and they were learning on the fly. Brooke was very much the point of the spear for the Pacific Northwest, which was one of the earliest cities for Uber. Stay tuned. I mean, we dive deep into all of that. The early days of Uber Seattle, fixing supply, growing Uber X, which we all use today, didn't exist back then sacrifices of scaling, marketing to a new community of drivers, a new business culture of drivers, experiments, and then even a little bit of life after Uber and what she's doing today. I think this episode is particularly valuable to those who want to understand what it takes to build a rocket ship. She was one of those people that helped do that for Uber. And I think you can't learn from anyone better. She's also just one of those very impressive leaders who is willing to roll up her sleeves, has the experience and the scars to prove it, and is someone we should all be learning from. So I think that's a super lucky thing here. Have fun with this one. You can like and subscribe as you always would. We like that, but ultimately we want to hear from you. So leave us a comment, tell us what you think, ask us a question, tell us what's working and what's not for you. But please stay tuned. I think this will be a great one. Hey, Brooke, thanks for coming on. 
Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's really great to have you. Ty and I were talking about, there's a lot of Uber of blank insert word industry, but really this is this is Uber of Uber and the original physical marketplace. So in honor to have you on the show, we thought we'd actually start off asking you the question, why do you love traveling? Oh, that's a good, easy first question. I love it. I'm traveling. So I grew up traveling quite a bit with my dad's job and lived overseas. And I think that really just sparked an interest in seeing other cultures, seeing other religions, just scapes and, and topographies are so important to me. Uh, I also am like, a, I love oceans and I love diving. Uh, and so being able to access different reefs and beaches throughout the world is, is pretty amazing. Um, so I could travel pretty much every day, all day long <laughs> for the rest of my life um, and not get bored. And there's always something new that goes onto your bucket list after you, after you take a trip. So it's a never ending joy. Yeah. It's kind of perpetuating. Uh, what are some interesting places you've been to? I, I saw you've been to Istanbul, you, you took a you know year-long travel trip. Like, how many countries have you traveled to? I mean, I don't know exactly the number of countries, but do- dozens for sure. And I haven't haven't made it down to Antarctica yet. I'm I get a little bit seasick, <laughs> so I maybe someday. But uh, I, I think the coolest trip that we took more recently and in that in that year post Uber, like my sabbatical time, we went to this place called Masul in Indonesia, which is a dive resort. And this couple had kind of taken over this island with with an agreement by the local people. And they created this no touch, no take zone mm-hmm. uh, so, and no fish. And it's now one of the most biodiverse reefs in the entire oh, wow. world. And they pr- are preserving hundreds of thousands of acres of reef. And so studies go on there. It's the most, wow. it's the most amazing diving I've ever seen. It's definitely a bucket list. It, it takes days to get there, but it was by far one of the most like inspirational places, just what this couple did and what they've gone through. And then also just speaking to what two people can actually achieve in their lifetime. They've reached this harmony with the local, the local people, because now outside of the protected zone, you can actually, they're getting much more fish. Um, and then they're also, they have rangers that are protecting you against poachers coming in. Um, and so you're just seeing these species that were greatly impacted by the overfishing and the illegal fishing coming back and then tourism booming, uh, which is just really exciting. So that, that was definitely like my, my favorite spot, um, and that I've been to. It's, it sounds like sustainable traveling and it being sustainable and non-impactful is something that could be important to you when you are traveling? Definitely. I think I would rather not stay in a big resort. Um, that's part of a large chain. Like I like to research resorts to figure out or hotels or boutique hotels or homestays to understand like how they're integrating with both the environment and with the local people. And unfortunately, airplane travel is probably not that sustainable, but still, <laughs> I'm still getting on up. I'm not like getting on boats. <laughs> <laughs> to get across the Pacific, right? So, you know, I'm probably making some environment like choices that have some environmental impacts, but at least uh, try really hard to find places to, um, you know, give my money to that that help preserve or improve the the local population and environment. Yeah, and how come you think that's why is that important to you in in traveling? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important just in life. 
you know, we know obviously climate change is like a huge concern uh, for the world. And I think the world feels, it's also much smaller than, you know, it maybe felt 50 years ago. Honestly, I wasn't, I wasn't quite alive then, but I think as we just, we have to be good citizens, right? We live in a global world um, and it's critical that we understand that our footprint, whether it's in the choices that you make day to day or your choices in traveling. You mentioned scuba diving. So after coral starts bleaching, can it regenerate and come back? I, I, I had this debate with someone in Hawaii and he was certain that they could regenerate. But the documentary that I saw, it said once it bleached and then it turned, it, 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 was, a, it was a tipping point. It couldn't turn back. I don't know. I mean, I am not a marine biologist, though. I think I did want to be one <laughs> like everyone at some point in their life. Um, so I, I don't know, like the scientific answer to that. I do. I mean, you coral can regrow, but I don't know. I'm pretty sure once it's bleached, it is dead. Right. So a coral is a, is a creature is alive. And so once it's bleached, like that's dead, like that coral is not going to come back. That being said, I have no idea if new coral can come in and grow over a bleached coral bed. You know, they will sink ships in order to help promote coral growth. Hmm. So there are ways that you can help promote the regrowth of corals, but so, so I guess maybe the answer is both. Now I'm going to have to research it after this, <laughs> um, but I don't think you can revive once coral is dead. It's not, it's not coming back to life, but you can grow new coral. It just takes a very, very long time. Yeah. Because it's a living organism that's using the coral as kind of like a skeleton, right? Yeah. yeah. And so once it's dead, it's. It's yeah. left, you could say. Yeah. 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 To a different life. So I noticed in a past life, you were a travel writer. How did that come to be? Yeah. So I, I don't think I was a very good travel writer, to be honest. <laughs> I'm much more of like, a, I have a, a bit of more of a science background, but I, after I graduated from college, I moved to Mexico just kind of on a whim and down to Puerto Verita. And one of the jobs I had while I was down there is I wrote for a company called Nile Guide. It was like a scrappy startup. I don't think they're around anymore, um, but was their local, kind of like their local expert and wrote their uh, Port of Verita content for them. And then this is probably not on my resume, but I did work for Off and Away, which was a luxury hotel auction site. And I wrote all of the content about, the, about the hotels. Um, so I would like pretend in my mind that I, I you know, I was, it was, that was probably almost a decade ago, scarily enough to think about that, maybe nine years ago. Um, I had never stayed in a five-star hotel in my life. <laughs> and so I I think I just like pretended like I went there and I wrote the con all the content for those hmm. and for for the rooms. What's it like staying in a five-star resort or hotel? <laughs> now I've done a couple. Like my opinion on on travel is like I said, obviously it's impact, right? On the community, what if it is a chain, is it a small chain and kind of what they give back? My personal take is like either go all the way and go super luxe on some of that stuff or just go for a really like all your needs met. It's clean and it has, you know, a comfortable bed and good AC if it's really, if it's a really hot location or in a nice spot. But that's, that's kind of my take on luxury or what kind of hotel to, to get into. Nice, nice. I like it. Jumping a little further back, we were we were looking at, at at your resume and saying, 
what is ohm gaming oh yeah you have an inception story about that (laughs) i no one's asked me about that in a really long time but so when i was oh my gosh i mean i was in college at that time i had a, a then boyfriend who would stay up all night playing video games and of course i would get mad um, I think like any 19 year old girlfriend does. And, yeah. but one day he came to me and he's like, Brooke, we can sell items. So he was playing Diablo too. And which any big gamers out there will know what that is. <laughs> um, and, and we realized that we could sell the items that he was finding in the game on eBay. So like a virtual item. And actually this concept is pretty, it's pretty typical now. Like, I mean, right. every game is now a freemium game. But Ohm Gaming was really like freemium gaming before Sony or Blizzard actually put anything in game. So we were just the freemium producer. So we would sell items. Eventually, we started selling leveling services for World of Warcraft. And we actually had an office in Shaman, China, um, where the labor was actually done. So at first, it was us playing the video games and like finding items or selling credits or whatever, whatever game we were currently into. Um, but eventually then we just became the middlemen. So I like learned how to code a website. It was terrible <laughs> and, um, became like the customer service and also the, uh, the kind of the money handler, like the finance side of it. And then the, the, the playing was actually done by people in an office in China. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. The fact it was mind blowing to me that people would spend so much money on video games and then. I kind of kick myself because I should have then developed my own video games that for <laughs> things because it turns out uh, that's a really fantastic, <laughs> a fantastic small, for better or worse. I don't know. Right. I, I personally wish that you could just like buy a video game um, and then not be charged anything more to access content. But I think that that, that ship has now sailed and I sadly might have been a part of helping that happen in, in a weird in a weird yeah. way. <laughs> it's the normal process today. There's lots of extra buying wow. inside and outside of the game, right? Yeah, it's terrible. Jumping back forward, uh, so we saw, where does the name Vivian come from in your more recent resume? Yeah, so that's actually my grandma's name um, on my dad's side. My other grandma's name, Marcella, and I was just blessed of having like really great, I feel like grandmothers, but my Vivian, her name was Vivian Cook. That was her fourth husband's last name. <laughs> um, she was a no-nonsense woman who just didn't care what anyone thought of her, um, what anyone said about her. And I, I think I really appreciate that, especially growing up in the generation that she did, um, that she was definitely like her own independent woman and didn't take anything from anyone else. And, and, um, you know, she had some struggles in her life, but she was really a fantastic lady. And, and so I, you know, post Uber, I've, you know, I'm doing advising, consulting, some investment. Um, and so Vivian and Co is just kind of the entity that I operate that under. Nice. And, and so, I mean, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the companies you're helping to advise or what you've got, what you've been excited about over the last couple of years? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's a lot to be excited about. I think that there's a lot of, there's like, so I, there's a lot of startups, obviously now I feel like there's a lot of funding going through and one 
local company that I'm super excited about is Sean Akazi's company, Weekdays. I think that the early childhood education space is ripe to be disrupted. There's definitely other players in this, and there's actually been quite a bit of money a few years ago, but I think the model's evolving and figuring out what the right pathway is. And I think there will probably be a number of players that are successful. Um, there's also Otter, which an old Uber uh, colleague of mine, Stephen Seiger, just went to. Um, he's their new COO. So there's some like pretty cool companies popping up in the early childhood education space. And, um, you know, Ty, you know this, but we just, we just had a baby. And so I think maybe six, seven years ago, I wouldn't have been as into it. Um, but I, you know, really am focused on how critical those first few years of life are. All the studies are showing, it's kind of amazing. Like if, if our, our son was extremely premature. And so he's actually very high risk for learning disabilities. Um, luckily everything's fine as of now, but you know, you never know what will pop up. And, and we learned from the doctors that if you catch a learning disability, you know, pre age five, many of them can be corrected. Not all, obviously there's some pretty significant, you know, if you have really severe issues there, you know, there's nothing that, that you can do to correct them, but there's definitely like learning speech, reading, et cetera, um, that with intervention. And so that early childhood education, and I think President Biden is also like focused on this as well with his American Families Plan. Like early childhood education, it needs much more focus than it does now than it does, than it has today, and it's so critical to improving the lives of these children and having them be giving back to society. Um, and and so I'm excited about that space. I think someone's going to come in and disrupt it. So excited to be helping out weekdays um, as an advisor right now. And then I also worked on some on the energy side uh, with a company called Ledger 8760. And they're, they're kind of, they're more like a B2B um, platform. Um, But obviously that, that kind of, I was interested in it because of the environmental side and the, how critical it is that, we know and understand where our power is coming from, you know, that has a a huge footprint. I mean, the U S is still burning coal to feed the grid in some places, which you're just kind of like, what are we doing? Yeah. Uh, Still. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of crazy to think that we have it. There's so many other solutions out there that are so much more green, but we kind of don't talk about or understand where our power is coming from and neither do large companies. Um, And I think, that's, that's what Ledger's focused on and, and, and a few other things as well. It's a pretty complex platform, but, um, you know, definitely the environmental side was my interest in that. So it's been, it's been fun kind of jumping around in different verticals uh, that have nothing to do with transportation. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, weekdays operates like a marketplace or with, you know, is a marketplace for the early stuff, right? Or early education and yeah. micro learning, micro teaching. Yeah, the micro schools and they've tested, you know, they've, they've been looking at the 1099 model, um, but they're also looking at an employee model. And so um, I think that to me, that's also super interesting. And obviously the experience with Uber um, helps think through some of those issues of, you know, con- controlling quality and mandating certain things. Like, is it, it an Uber still faces these problems today, right? We see it in the news all the time that, 
is a highly managed marketplace, really just a set of employees that you need to have? Um, or is it, um, or do you like loosen the reins and, and have it really be an open marketplace? Um, it's it's interesting. And I think with early childhood education, we're seeing that more control could be better um, because quality is so critical and curriculum, right? Like there's just, there's a lot of studies. You're you're not just driving someone from A to B, right? You're watching their child. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hours. very skilled um, work, yeah. Yeah, Definitely. so it's it's really interesting. It'll be a really interesting evolution to see like what the kind of perfect marketplace looks like for early childhood education. Yeah, I like that. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a decent segue. We were jumping in, obviously, with, uh, th- this season is all about marketplace mayhem, as we like to say it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we, we started this with this idea of, like, there are so many marketplaces out there because they kind of took on the Uber of. But you obviously were one of the, the ones that got to be part of the, the early days of Uber itself. Um, and so to jump back to that, you know, that love to dig in there a bit about um, that, that, those early days at Uber. Um, so, so correct me if I'm wrong, but Seattle was an early, one of the early markets for, for Uber. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe it was the third city. Third city for Uber. Um, and so, you know, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit about the early days. I know we think of Uber today as the peer to peer, but it didn't start that way. When you joined as the GM of, of Uber Seattle, what did it look like? What were you guys focused on? How were you thinking about building this, uh, this business? Yeah, I mean, when I joined, there were two people in the office. So there were two employees in the Seattle office. We had just moved into this like basement up on Capitol Hill. Um, and there was only black car. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think Lyft had launched in San Francisco. So obviously there was a big discussion around peer-to-peer. Um, and that's that's really what I would like Uber Black in Seattle already existed. Um, I was the second GM and came in that uh, I was I was coming in to figure out how to scale, right? Black car, there was only a there was only so much you could do with black car. There were and especially in a city like Seattle, there's we're not a fancy city. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of like really expensive, beautiful town cars or now, you know, now now it's like beautiful Audis or Mercedes, right? But those just don't exist here. Um, and it's also not that environmental to drive a car that gets 10 miles to the gallon um, all around the city. But it was actually a really, it was an awesome solution because, you know, people experience this in San Francisco too. But my first experience with Uber was before I worked there, I, it was Halloween, you know, it was late at night. I called Yellow Cab. I had maybe had had a couple of drinks. They, I waited on hold for 45 minutes. I finally get to dispatch and they're like, what's your address? And I go, cause I would, I forgot where I was, you know, <laughs> and click. they didn't even give me a chance to get wow. my, my wits together to give the address. And then I remembered, Oh, someone told me about Uber. I'm going to try it. And I think I had a Blackberry at the time. If you guys remember those. And I texted in, I texted my address and you used to have text capabilities where you could text a short code. Oh, wow. You would just literally text the address you were at and then boom, a car would show up there. And there was no tracking or mapping back in the day. And then too, you would also tell the driver where you were going. And that experience was so magical 
and so fantastic that I kind of knew I had to work there. So that was really what, what Uber looked like in Seattle when I joined. And then I was hired to figure out, you know, what UberX would look like. Um, and there was a, uh, we were exploring kind of regulatory models. So while many people probably don't know this, we really, really tried to find a regulatory solution to launching UberX prior to just kind of going for it. And no one would talk to us. Like we definitely made a lot of phone calls and asked a lot of people to help find a regulatory solution. And and no one was interested in that. And they wanted to leave the system as it, as it was, even though it was really clear it wasn't working right. Like there was no oversight. There was a lot of really significant safety issues happening, both for drivers who were carrying lots of cash but also for riders who experienced issues in taxis without, you know, oh, who was your driver? I have no idea. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of problems and and there wasn't a lot of appetite to tackle those problems and and to also just fix the supply issue. There was no supply, you know, there was no cars. So so that that was when I came in was to kind of grow Uber Black, but then also figure out an UberX solution. So, yeah, I mean, I'm jumping ahead here a bit because we always ask about the chicken and the egg problem, but it sounds like you were faced with it right out of the get-go. You've got to launch UberX. It's this new idea. There's this other company out there. How did you guys think about that? What did you go after first? How did you, you know, yeah, what what were the what were the beginning uh, conversations and, and experiments that you guys? Did? Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because it it was some of it was much more emotional, I think, than we would all like to admit, you know, so I think we knew that first we looked at getting UberX licensed through like the limousine services at the Mm -hmm. state level, but the wheelbase, so the kind of like how long the axle was, didn't fit. And so there actually was, the lift was not operational in Seattle, sidecar was, I don't know if you guys remember. I remember them. Yeah. Um, But I mean, you know, they are no longer around and I think they were kind of a victim of the Uber lift wars just the amount of dollars spent between those two companies really made it hard, I think, for a third to come in um, and be successful in that specific space. But they were actually launched and operational in Seattle, uh, you know, quite with without a regulatory framework, shall I put it? <laughs> so so I think the first take was, okay, we, we've kind of exhausted these discussions at the state and the city level how do we make sure that we launch a product that is super high quality and is very safe, um, you know, without actually having a regulatory umbrella to dictate those levels of safety. And so, you know, our vision of UberX in Seattle was actually a fleet of black Priuses. So that was our, we wanted green vehicles and we wanted them to be black and classy and, and, you know, kind of not sidecar, had just any kind of any car imaginable any, any year, there. Any, year uh-huh. any driver anything i mean hmm. you could, there could be a pickup truck that pulled up a minivan um it could be a know, tuk-tuk yeah maybe <laughs> you know, who knows yeah. Right? elephant yeah and so i think our original vision for seattle was a black prius mm-hmm. like rolling up we quickly found that that did not yield nearly enough cars there was not enough black Priuses. Um, and then, but it, it did, I think 
we might have spread a rumor that your Prius had to be black so that lots of people came with them. So we tried really hard to, to, <laughs> to kind of create our vision. And we, we did uh, not allow certain cars like a PT Cruiser, for example, to be on the platform simply because we thought it was a stupid car. <laughs> <laughs> No, no bruiser cruisers allowed no we blocked minivans for a while too because we were just like oh no like we we really were trying to keep some of that quality right like the original vision of uber was that you pulled up and and there were little bottles of water in the car and the driver opened the door for you and you didn't have to exchange cash and it was kind of this magical experience with black car and i think that's really how uber took off and we didn't want to lose that with UberX. Um, you know, I mean, I think everyone that's taken UberX today realizes that there's definitely not little bottles of water waiting for you. And, and the driver is definitely not getting out of their car to open your door. Um, you know, when you have to scale to such degrees, I think you, you have to abandon some of those sometimes. And, um, but, but we also did institute background checks from the get-go safety checks. I mean, me, like I literally, we wrote a safety checklist and I've inspected vehicles, right? Like we made up a process for vehicle inspections, even though one wasn't required um, because we thought that that was important from a safety perspective, right? You don't want to get a car that's all rusted out. And, right. yeah. and I'm not also not a licensed mechanic, so maybe we fudged it a little, <laughs> But, you know, you had something. I, I do think yeah. those are those things that people don't realize today. Like when they talk about Uber, obviously lots of stories out there, good and bad. And they don't realize that there was a lot of a, attempts at, from the very beginning to, to, to be there. But what I heard in what, one of the things I think I heard you say you didn't have enough supply. So did you have demand coming in where people hitting the app or trying it out and you just needed cars? Yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of talk about the chicken and the egg thing. And I think yeah, for yeah. a marketplace like Uber, one of the biggest problems you have is like, imagine you go onto the Uber app and it's your first experience and there's no cars, mm. right? Like, you're, I mean, what are the chances you're coming back, right? Yeah, you, yeah. I, I think that if you are building a market, like an Uber type marketplace app, you have to build the supply first and you have to have enough funds to invest in it because then, then you want the customers to come. And really Uber had such a fantastic, you know, we were so lucky to have that problem that we really didn't think that much about rider marketing, you know, or like consumer marketing until much later. Um, of course there was, like I would say there was some branding and growth early on from a, a super like grassroots mm-hmm. way, not necessarily a, a mega like paid, mar- like super scaled paid um, yeah. marketing. But, and, and of course we were always running like ads for the consumer, but it was, it was never as challenging as it was to get drivers on the road. That was where the big money was going in the early days. And that it was just so critical because you wanted someone to have a good experience and the, that magic of a car pulling up in just a few minutes that we all take for granted today, mind you, like people get mad. They're like, my Uber took seven minutes to get to me. Right. And you're like, 
Dude, we used to take an hour and a half to get a taxi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. So, but but it, if you could get them on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> and they didn't hang up on you. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it, I think it's so critical to build that, to build the, the supply side. Like you have to, you know, you have to have that. And that was so much of the focus was getting drivers on the road. And I will give them so much credit. You know, the first drivers that came on the road, um, you know, even the black car drivers, they, they did door knocking. I wasn't working for the company at the time, but the first Uber driver in Seattle, uh, Austin guy, one of the, the, the OG Uber, like, I think she was employee four. Um, she like literally was in Seattle and knocked on this guy's door and just begged him to be on the platform. And he finally agreed. And that's how, I mean, I think it also, you know, goes to show that if you're at a startup and you're trying to build supply, like, yeah, it's okay. If you're, first attempt at building supply doesn't scale, right? Like I wouldn't focus so much on like, well, door knocking doesn't scale. That is true. Um, but, you know, to get the first, to really just like get into a market, sometimes you have to just like roll up your sleeves and do really unscalable things. And then you kind of figure out the scale later. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. You, you said you've got to have the supply, obviously a bit of an investment, both in grit, hustle, but, but, but also money. At some point, you've got to figure out that demand flywheel. Um, where did you guys really start to see the, the work on supply pay off? You know, where did that flywheel start? You guys yeah. this? So it's interesting because I think first you start with like exist, the existing drivers within a city, right? So, you know, whether you're building a market what, whatever kind of marketplace you're building, I think you look at what, what currently exists. Okay. But you don't want to limit yourself to thinking, okay, we're, we're capped out at the amount of taxi drivers that exist in mm-hmm. Seattle. Right. Sure. A lot of times people look at that. And actually, if you look at Uber's original pitch, which is in, which is available online, the deck is, you know, they propose this as a, a billion dollar business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, before, by the time I left the Pacific Northwest that we were operating about a billion dollar business. Um, so it's, then that was like the global view. Um, so I think first you always take, you know, the low hanging fruit, the, the people that are currently working in the industry and you figure out how do you make it better for them? Right. Um, you know, as an existing taxi driver, you were carrying a lot of cash. Um, there were definitely robberies happening there was definitely fear. It was almost all men. Uh, there wasn't any women. Uh, then not any, that's not fair. There was a handful of women, but it was like 99% male. Um, you know, so we worked really hard to create a safer environment uh, for the drivers. And in the early days, and actually still to this day, financially, it was more lucrative for a driver. So we definitely incentivized the supply side Mm-hmm. heavier than it's, than it's incentivized today. And there were some drivers in those early days of Uber making some pretty, like pretty serious money, like more than, more than my salary was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we tried to be as explicit as possible that this was not like plan that, you know, the salary as an Uber driver is not going to be a hundred thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for forever. Right. Um, but when you do have really great incentives, you know, the, the market is kind of amazing and it will kind of people come, right? Like if, you know, I can like 
push a few buttons on an app. And, and actually back in the day, we used to do in-person testing for the drivers, you know, just, just like to make sure that they could answer some, some basic questions similar to the testing that the city would do uh, for four hire licenses. So it was like kind of pre, again, this is the pre-regulation state. So, so yeah, we just like tried to build that quality, build and make sure that they were better off driving on Uber than they were for a taxi. Cause remember back in the day too, you had to pay like $400 a week to rent your taxi. Um, and yes, you might hear stories of like the one big fare that you get from like driving city to city, like Seattle, to Portland, you know, yeah. LA to San Diego. But the reality was, is that there was still a lot of downtime with taxis as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people, you know, amortize that we're making a couple dollars an hour. And so overall, I think Uber kind of like gave access, gave earning access to many more people than, than, than taxi did. And they came, right? Like drivers came online. And then of course, then you have to figure out how to reduce the friction, et cetera. But um, I think it was just all about letting them earn and, and have flexibility, uh, which was kind of unheard of before. Hey, hey, wasn't that awesome? Hope you're enjoying it so far. Yeah, and you better get ready because we didn't end the conversation there. So stay tuned for part two of this striking conversation. More mayhem coming.